My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. We're rolling camera, rolling sound in three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. This week in the studio, a man who spent over a decade in service to this country. He held assignments with 1st ID, 10th Mountain Division, and 7th Special Forces. This guest has always lived his life with purpose, whether trying to become famous as a punk rock musician, biking across the United States to raise awareness for mental health, or pushing his body to the limits with extreme projects and competitions. This amazing guest has fought and recovered from some of the most devastating injuries imaginable. From grand mal seizures, necrotizing fasciitis, and even being hit by a car during a half Ironman, only to wake up in an ambulance wondering where he was. I'm so honored that this guest is joining me in the studio. He's a former Green Beret, a 7X participant, and a hard motherfucker to kill. Please welcome Zachary Garner. What's up, brother? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy you're here, man, with everything that's getting ready to happen and just to talk about your amazing career and everything that you went through. Now, we talked a long time ago, and we said we're not going to talk about resilience because it's been talked to death. We're going to talk about purpose tonight. We're going to talk about mind state, purpose, and really getting on with our lives when things happen. So the way I want to go about this is, like always, we're going to start with back in the day, but we're going to move through quickly and build upon each area that we're talking about. So let's talk growing up, your dad, Vietnam vet, 22 years in the service. Uh, did that have any effect on what you were going to do in life? Um, to an extent, you know, I grew up and, and my dad didn't talk about it much. He would occasionally share a story here and there like we would sit down on the couch and watch platoon together and i would ask questions and he'd answer them but when it actually when i was 18 years old and decided college wasn't the route for me i told him i wanted to join the army and he was like fuck that and yeah he he was like i did my time i don't want you to have to do it and I'm not going to support it. And he was like, do you want to join the Coast Guard? <laughs> so, <laughs> now, uh, listen, I'm not laughing about the Coast Guard because those guys have their job and they do some pretty cool shit. But it seems very strange from a guy that was in 22 years in Vietnam telling his son, no army, you're going in the Coast Guard. Yeah, he he did three tours in Vietnam, so... You know, he had his demons that he was fighting, and I think he just didn't want that for me. So he took me to the the Coast Guard recruiter. I walked in. There was a poster on the wall of, like, the rescue swimmer jumping out of the helicopter, and I was like, I want to do that. And 
I went and did all my MEPS, my ASVAB, everything. I had the contract. And then they called me and like the big picture started to unfold. And they're like, well, you can't go to basic training till next year. And I was ready to leave tomorrow. And then they said, you're going to go to a unit as like a regular, whatever they are, um, in, in the Coast Guard. And then when the school date opens up for rescue swimming, you can go there then. And so I was like, there's a lot of unknown factors here. And I'm not okay with that. So I told my dad, I said, hey, you can come help me do this process or I can go do it on my own, but I'm going to go talk to the Army recruiters. So he came around. He went with me. He actually spent some time as a recruiter, so he knew how to negotiate with them, what I could get in my contract and everything. And so, yeah, it um, – you know, and he he came to my basic training graduation, and I have the picture sitting here on top of his urn right next to my desk. Um, but he cried, and and my dad didn't cry a lot in my life, and I could tell like he's proud of me, like I, and that was that was like a huge win for me because there weren't a lot of times in my childhood where I knew that, and. Well, that's what I was just about to ask. Was there, was that ever a thing ever? I, I don't know. Like my parents were, were great parents. Um, but they, my dad, especially like, he just wasn't like, we were really close. We were really good friends, but the father son relationship was always, you know, I grew up in a split home, mom in one house, dad in another house. And me and my dad would spend a lot of time together and we got along like really good friends, but there wasn't like, a, like there are some, like, I don't, I don't know. I had a lot of liberties as a kid where I wish my father would have like pulled the ropes in a little bit. But at the end of the day, I think as parents, I'm a parent now to a 16 year old and we're all just doing our best. And I think that's what he was doing. And, and he was, you know, he was doing better than his family. So he kind of escaped some of the the issues that were going on in his family and did better by being in the military. And, you know, that just continues to grow. We all learn from our own childhood. And when, when you say that, though, what, what's interesting about that when you talk about your dad and you say there was a lot of liberties, do you think that was because he was in the military and he seemed so much against it? So do you think... I don't want to say like counterculture and stuff, but do you think that he was trying to let you see that there was a, a different world because his had been, you know, razor focused for at least three tours of Vietnam? Yeah, I do to an extent. Um, when I, so right after high school, I went on the road playing music and he, he supported me through that, you know, he, he showed up the, like the kickoff show was in our, our hometown. And then we hit the road from there and he came to that show. And then he was like, Hey, I don't have much, but here's 500 bucks. Like just to get you on your, on your way. And, and that meant a lot to me. And then, you know, after about a year I came home and said, I'm going to, I'm going to join the military. And I think he was, all, all throughout, I think maybe part of it was he felt like he needed to say that as a father, like to protect his son. It was like him finally letting go. We were also like, this was 2004. So we were already 
deep into Iraq and Afghanistan. And so he knew I was going to end up over there. And yeah, so he, he was supported not initially, but he came around and ended up being, you know, my biggest fan throughout my, my career until he passed away in 09. What was his uh, job in the military? Started out as an 11 Bravo and then did that. I don't, know how many years but since i was born he was in recruiting command so so he really did know kind of the the ins and outs and what you could get and what you couldn't get because i think at the time when he was coming or you know when he was going through vietnam because they had the sf babies back then and then i Mm -hmm. think when you were coming in they had the pipeline too right yeah they had restarted it so was that was that ever on your mind Not initially. So, you know, I'll probably catch some shit from some guys for this, but, uh, (laughs) so I remember going to the movie theater and seeing Black Hawk down with my dad. And that was like the first, that was when the spark first got ignited. And I was like, I kind of want to be one of those guys. And so I came in and I remember like as I was going through the process when I was in the DEP program and I was like, I'm just going to right now try to get through base training because I wasn't like I wasn't a stud growing up like I was not athletic Um, at all. I played men's volleyball. Okay. All right. (laughs) I was the captain of the men's volleyball team. <laughs> now, I think you might catch more shit for that than... Couldn't <laughs> join the Air Force. Yeah. Um, there was a great scene in uh, Top Gun, so you would have done, you know, thumbs up in the Navy. Right? So, I, um, yeah, I played men's volleyball. I ran track, and but I wasn't, like, a stud at it um i was good at men's volleyball i will say that but i'm also six three so that helps and yeah so initially i was like i'm just gonna go to basic training and see how this goes but if i don't feel challenged then i'll find that next step as as it unfolds from there you know, I was telling you before the show, last week we had Jason Tushin on. I'm talking to him. He was a punk rocker, too, uh, in a band, Intensive Care, when he was coming up in Milwaukee. You were in a punk rock band. You toured around and everything. What do you think it is about that punk rock lifestyle and that special operations lifestyle that marry so well together? I think in all of us... And I say that like the special operator, that there's a little bit of like, fuck the man mindset. Yeah. Um, and not in like a, an anti-authority way or like a, even a disruptive way, but there's a little bit of us that's like, this is the norm and I don't want to be that. Yeah, a, a lot of people have said, you know, when they were, you, you know, but you stayed in regular for quite a while. Um, yeah, about six years. Yeah, so with that, though, you know, a lot of guys say, man, I just didn't fit in in regular Army. I couldn't figure out qu- quite where I fit in. But when I transferred over into special operations, went to selection and everything, I, I knew right then that was where I was supposed to be. That's what I was supposed to do. 
Did you have that kind of feeling when you did that, or were you just fine in regular army? No, I was bored in the regular army. Um, it it wasn't challenging at all. Physically, it wasn't challenging. Mentally, it wasn't challenging. I wasn't. I had, you know, I was blessed. I had really good leadership early on, and they set me up for success. That's where I learned a lot of my work ethic, a lot of my morals, my values. Everything came from those immediate leaders because I came in at 19 years old. And so it it affected me early on, and then I, I excelled above my peers because of that, and then it was like, well, I need something more physically challenging. And so I just made the decision. There was an article, I was stationed in Germany at the time, and there was an article that came out in the Army Times about a mission that went on in Afghanistan. Um, I believe it was third group, a couple Silver Star recipients. And I was reading this article and was just like, I, I think I want to go try to do this. And I, Honestly, I didn't know. Like, I had some exposure to special forces guys when I was in 10th Mountain because we had a Dust One incident in my battalion. And so they came in to, to help assist with that. And, but I didn't know a lot about their mission or I, so I just started reading everything and anything I could find. And the concept of being a force multiplier, I've always loved teaching. Um, even as uh, a young sergeant, I love taking the younger guys in and teaching classes, hip pocket training, you know, sergeant's time training, whatever. I always volunteered to do that stuff because I just enjoyed it. I love seeing the light bulb click and knowing that I facilitated that to happen. So that's what really motivated me to get over there. But I did early, as soon as I got over there, I was like, these are my people. Just when you're surrounded by guys like that with that mentality you become that you start to think that way it rubs off on you and it was like i almost felt like i had this this drive that was repressed for years and it finally like i found a place that i could let it out and it would be okay i, I know you made it through selection the first time and everything but did everything go pretty smoothly in your career changing over to there or was there any kind of bump and goes? No, I had, I was a first time go for everything. I just had a little pause in there because I went through a divorce in the Q course. So that. Well, that's always a up. good time to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You got it out of the way. Exactly. You know, the first one's always, you know, it's a practice marriage <laughs> for both of you. I mean. I, I don't know. I've I been married 25 years, so. You've been married 25 years? Yeah. Yeah. Good for you, man. Yeah. I'm now, yeah. I've now been married 11 years, so. You talk a lot about your dad, and you mentioned him. Was there that kind of relationship with your mom, too? And, and did you take anything from her into kind of your military career? Um, My mom and I, like, we were close, but just very different. And so again, my mom did her best. I got nothing to say. Like I didn't have, like, I don't have a dramatic story about my, my childhood. 
but I was, I was a handful. I can admit that, you know, I, when I was seven years old, I was diagnosed with ADD and ADHD. And I think my mom just like, didn't know what to do with me. And, and I've always had a mindset where like, if I'm not interested, I'm not going to spend the energy on it. So with school, it was like that, like, I just wanted to, to play music and chase girls and, you know, that sort of thing, hang out with my friends as a kid. And my mom did her best, but she was also like, when I was in high school, I have an older sister. She went to college and I think my mom started to feel I'm a teenager at this point. So my mom's like, I have some freedom. So she started dating and stuff again, never got remarried, but she was kind of like, there was some some distance there, not like absence, but, you know, we didn't spend a, a ton of time together. And so during those like teenage years, we just didn't have a super close relationship. It wasn't a bad relationship. We just weren't super close. And I remember I joined like I signed my contract and had my ship date to basic training. And I went to go visit my mom at the hospital that afternoon. And I walked in, she was a nurse and I walked in and one of the other nurses like pulled me into a side room and she's like, Hey, your mom's really upset about this. And I was like, Oh, and she was like, she's proud of you, but she's just really scared. So just know that. And I was just like, Oh, I didn't realize this even would have an effect on her, but it did. And, and, you know, me and my mom, we get along great today. She's uh, she's still up in Indiana, and we talk every week. And she's actually coming down here in a couple weeks to visit us. And yeah, she's like now my mom's one like she's like my biggest fan. She's super proud. She loves telling her friends about the things I'm up to. And yeah, we've got a great relationship. But as a kid, it. Like we just had very different personalities. When you're in the military uh, and we've talked about your first marriage and into your second, you have kids now and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, do you take that into consideration in your uh, marriage, in your uh, being a father? Do you take all of those things that we just talked about and kind of put them into practice while you're in the military and stuff? I try to. Um my dad's career and my career were very different. So for, from the time that I was born, like my dad was in recruiting command and didn't go like, except for maybe some training here and there, he was more or less home. Um, I do try to take some of the things that now as an adult, I can look back and be like this, there were some things I was exposed to as a kid that I probably shouldn't have been. And I try to make sure I don't expose my kid to those. Um, and then I try to just find ways to connect with, with my daughter, you know? So for instance, she's watching, she's 16. She's watching this Netflix series, you it's weird. It's about this psycho guy that stalks women and kills them. And I don't know if you've watched it. 
No, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, but she's super into it. And so the new season's about to come out and she's been talking about it. So I went and watched the previous three seasons so that when the new season comes out, we can watch it together. Once again, you might catch shit for that too, watching you by yourself. No, with my kid. Well, no, your first three. Did you watch the first three by yourself though? Or my kid. Hey. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I have three daughters, two teenagers, one that's going to be a teenager pretty soon. And it's all those things. And it's it's always interesting to me, the relationship with your father. And I would even go so far as to say you guys' careers were different, but I don't really, I really don't think they were. I mean, if you think about it, three combat tours in Vietnam, all the combat tours you did, you're you're not that far off from each other. A, a, a thing that was that I think about when you say that, did you guys ever talk about that kind of stuff? So once I deployed for the first time and I came back, he definitely started to open up a lot more and, and shared some more from his experience because now it was something we could bond over because we both experienced this. And then... You know, so he actually was, this actually brings me back to a question you asked a couple minutes ago, was was special forces on the table when I initially joined? And so at my basic training graduation, he came and he brought it up while we were, you know, on our like little evening pass to go out into town. He was like, you, you put on weight, you look good physically you're doing great you shouldn't try out for special forces and i was like we'll see if we get there like right now i just want to get to my first duty station see what, uh, initially i thought i was only going to do four years in the army so i was like i don't know and then it was actually when i went home so i was stationed in germany in 2009 he got diagnosed with cancer the day I left to PCS from Fort Drum to Germany and was immediately diagnosed with cancer. So he ended up living about eight months from the day that they found it. And he, I, the, his hospice nurse called me and said, hey, if you can come home and you want to see him, now's the time that you need to do it. So I flew home and I got to spend a couple days with him before he passed. And ironically, the week before was when I had submitted my packet and been accepted to go to selection. And he didn't even know about this yet. And so I got to tell him in like the day before he passed away that, hey, I'm going to do this. And, you know, he wasn't around to see it come to fruition, but I know he's looking down. I see him in, in things all the time and I know he's proud. So I want to talk about going back to your daughter. Is that a life that you would want for her? Because you know, your dad said, no, not the army and stuff like that. Looking how the military is the state of the world today and how it's rapidly evolving by the minute. Is that something that you want for her? I, I would support her if she wanted to. It would be hard. I'm not going to lie. Um, as 
someone that's been in the military and my wife has also been in the military. And so she's got a whole nother perspective, the perspective of a female in the army. And so I know she would probably have her own views on that. If it was something that she was passionate about and she wanted to do, I'd, I'd support her doing just about anything as long as, you know, morals aligned with it. Yeah, absolutely. Because my oldest, and the reason I asked that is because my oldest now is starting to look at colleges. She's got, you know, one more year of school and she's starting to look at service academies and stuff and talking about, you know, after, even after she finishes, if she doesn't go to an academy, but after she finishes her college career going into the military. So it's something that I think um, our generation now has to think a lot more about because I, I, even though our numbers are down, I think that's going to, spike in the next few years and it's going to go back on the uptrend just like Mm -hmm. everything does in the military you know being cyclical so i always wonder and i ask is that something you want because being a police officer i've i've always told mine i would support them but i don't want them to be in law enforcement it's changed too much there's 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 too many different things now you can't do the jobs that we've done and not become jaded at the world and that's the thing that I worry about the most is becoming jaded to the world or becoming, you know, where there's not really those rose colored glasses anymore. You yeah. kind of see it for, for what it is. So, I mean, and, and that's everything that goes into me asking you that. Is that something that you want or would you prefer something else? I would prefer something else. And if you knew her, I don't think I have much to worry about. <laughs> but, but my parents might have said that about me at 16 too so it's true yeah you know, who knows um but i would i would prefer something else it, you know just i don't know how many guys like my peer group now i got out just shy of 11 years and my peer group now is at that retirement age they're hitting you know 18 19 20 years and the guys that I still keep in touch with, they're like, you left at the right time. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I'd prefer that she find her own thing, but she's, she's a lot smarter than I was. She's got options and like, I think she'll be, she'll find success somewhere outside of the military. I'm confident. Talking about your military career, I want to compare one more thing. I want to compare your regular army to your special uh, operations career. Um, on deployments, you seem to have the problems once you went into special operations. And I'm talking about medical things that happened to you. Was any of that present in your regular army career? I mean, did you see this on the horizon at all? Was there anything that you look back now and go, holy shit, that was kind of staring at me in the face? No, um, I had, I had two deployments with the regular army, both to Iraq and one was end of 04 into 05 and the other was 06 to 07. And then Which I was 06, in- 07 in Iraq was a crazy time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that was, I was a forward observer in 10th mountain division at the time. And it was, it was a busy deployment. It was a long one too. It was a 15 month deployment for our battalion. Mine actually got cut a little bit short because I got stabbed in the leg while I was home on R and R. 
So want to talk about that. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good story, I think. Okay. <laughs> well, what's funny is you said mine got cut short because I got stabbed in the leg while I was back at home, and I'm like, wait, wait a minute, that was not what I was thinking for this story. Yeah. But th- let's hear it. So, so oh six oh seven, I was with Tenth Mountain Division in four three one infantry, and we had a really rough deployment over 20 casualties um 20 it was like 27 kia i believe don't quote me on that um but the biggest thing was we had a dust one incident we had an ambush that took place at night time seven killed and three captured and the one of the while we were still in country we found the remains of one of the captured guys but the other two were missing for over a year um so it was it was a very busy deployment. So I didn't go on R and R until we were I was already like twelve months in country. And so I finally get to go home. And as soon as I this is oh seven, like my priorities wasn't getting my cell phone turned on. This is still like regular punch pad cell phones. We didn't even have like smartphones. So it was like, whatever, I can borrow my sister's phone and call my friends if I need to. And so went to a cookout at my sister's house. They were going to a Kenny Chesney concert that evening. I don't even care about Kenny Chesney. I can't even name a Kenny Chesney song. But they had an extra ticket and they're like, do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, why not? So me and my brother-in-law, we drink and barbecue all afternoon, then we walked to the concert because they only lived like a mile and a half from the venue. So we walked there and I'm drinking a Bloody Mary and I'm like stumbling. And so I spilled the Bloody Mary all over the front of my shirt. Well, we get to the concert and I wandered off from the group. I'm running into friends from high school. I just gotten back, literally just got off the plane from Iraq. So alcohol tolerance is low. They're buying me beers. I get way too drunk. And I finally borrowed some random person's cell phone and asked to call my sister. And I called my sister. She came and got me. She's like, you're good. We're going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to get you a funnel cake. We're going to sober you up. It's going to be a great night. I go in the bathroom, but there's a huge line. The concert's sold out. So I did that thing that I don't know if anybody else does this, but I was like, I'll just pretend I didn't see the line. So I'm like walking and acting like I'm texting on a phone, but I didn't even have a cell phone in my hands. So (laughs) some guy in line is like, hey, asshole, the line starts back here. And I just went in anyways, thinking, sorry. And I went in and I peed. This guy followed me into the bathroom, broke a beer bottle, reached underneath the stall that I was peeing in and just proceeded to shove it into my leg repeatedly. Holy shit. For cutting him in line. (laughs) (laughs) So. So is it safe to say that you didn't get that funnel cake? A cop carried me out because I jumped on top of the toilet seat and reached over the stall and started punching this guy, pulled his shirt over his head like a hockey fight and just started punching him. And a cop came in. It, 
this point I had lost some blood and passed out. And so he carried me out of the bathroom and this isn't my proudest moment. I'm just going to throw that out there now, but this okay. cop must have been huge. Cause he's carrying me like a baby and my sister and my girlfriend who became my first wife are standing outside and they're like, what the hell just happened? And the cop's like, I have no clue. And they get me in an ambulance and they take me in and a plastic surgeon puts my leg back together. So, okay. <laughs> There's so much to take in, in this story. He stabbed you in the back of the leg. I guess, Cause I guess you're standing towards the toilet. So he got you in the back of the leg, right? So I was, the urinals were full. So I was in a stall and he reached underneath the wall and just stuck it in my calf and then just like ripped it down. Wow. So, okay. So what happened? I mean, in the end, cause I mean, the, the guy stabbed you. So there had to be something else that happened from it. So I had one of the guys that was at the concert with us, a friend that we all grew up with. My sister's only two years older. So we had a lot of the same high school friends. So our buddy Russell, his, he's a cop in Indianapolis and his beat was working the concert that night. And so they came to the hospital to take a statement. They had the guy and they're like, what do you want to do? And I was like, let him go. I was like, I don't want any alcohol related incident on my military record. So this is, I'm going to take blame for this. I shouldn't have cut that guy in line. Lesson learned. Let him go. Okay. Have you ever cut in line ever since? No, bro. I learned that lesson. You know, I have, I have a theory that, that was developed from this. Um, and it's that every grown man should be punched in the face. Okay. Because until you get punched in the face, you think you can get away with anything. But eventually somebody shows you that you can't get away with it. And for me, it wasn't a punch in the face. It was a beer bottle in my calf. But I now know that I can't get away with anything, especially not cutting people in lines at country music concerts. So Okay. So that, <laughs> that, that, that deployment gets cut short. You come back. Uh, you are selected in. You go. And I, I, don't, I hate to speed over this, but, you know, I, I always say – the selection stories and stuff, they, they've been talked to death, especially since you made it through, you know, first time goes on everything. But as you go back, this will be your third deployment back in, correct? And now you're going to Afghanistan. Correct. Okay. So you go over there. Anything stick out to you from that? Because you said you were bored. You, you, you really weren't challenged in the Army. Was it different going back, Special Forces, third deployment into Afghanistan? Because also we're looking at two different kinds of warfare. Would you... Would you agree with that? Iraq and Afghanistan. So what's the difference in this one from the first two? It was, so this was actually a really interesting deployment. This was 2012. And so to give you a little bit of the backstory on how I ended up on this deployment. So I signed into group and this was when the fourth battalions in group were just getting stood up. And so Pretty much every new guy was getting sent to 4th Battalion. But there's this whole laundry list of stuff that you have to do as a battalion before you can be blessed off to, to deploy. So 
nobody wants to go to fourth battalion because you have to go through all that that whole checklist um, to show that you're capable and and it's a lot of work it's hard and so but i happened to be signing into group and while i was in the s1 office brand new i was an e6 when i graduated the q course so brand new i wasn't i was i've been a staff sergeant for like two and a half three years maybe so but i was a brand new green beret signing into group and they happened to get a phone call while i'm in the office that the staff sergeant with an 18 echo mos was needed in afghanistan to take over psd for the siege of sotov command so special operations task force afghanistan colonel fletcher sergeant major edwards i was their ptsd or sorry psd not pt i probably did cause them ptsd um but i was That worked out perfect. It, so, it, it sure did. That's I think that's what they call a Freudian slip. <laughs> now General Fletcher, and he's probably going to be like, yeah, that's about right. Um, so I went over to their personal security detachment, and it was an odd, like, at first I thought it was going to be horrible because you're at the flagpole and you're with the command staff all the time. Like, most guys would hate that. It was, as a new Green Beret and a staff sergeant that's new to group, it was a really awesome learning opportunity because we had our headquarters where we were basically over the weekend. And then during the week, we would go out and circle the whole battlefield, the entire country of Afghanistan. We would go to all the different SF teams, SF battalions, everybody that was in country. And I got to see the entire battle space over the course of six months. And whenever they had meetings and stuff that they were going to be stuck on base for, they gave me the freedom to go loan myself out to any team that wanted to give a guy an idle offer. Hey, we got a mission coming up and -and so-and-so has the shits. I could go, I I had access to my own birds. I would just go get a helicopter spun up, fly out and join a team for three days. And then I'd fly back and do what I needed to do for them and then do it again. And it was, it was great. It was an awesome experience. So very different because I had so much freedom on that deployment. That is not something you get conventional army. And, and that was going to be my next question. Say that deployment doesn't go like that. Say it's just, you know, you're doing the regular thing. Do you love it as much, you think? And, and be honest. Like, think about it. Do you love doing what you're doing as much if you hadn't seen the world as open as you did? As far as the mission, the PSV mission wasn't my favorite. Um because it it is you know it's it's just you always know what i i shouldn't say that you don't always know what you're going to get because things especially in countries like iraq and afghanistan things can always come out of nowhere but it's it's just very cut and dry like you have this purpose and that's your only purpose like there's no follow-on missions if like we're walking through town and we get ambushed the only mission is to get my principle back to base safe there's no after that like oh we're gonna go find this guy and you know anything that wasn't and 
I actually failed at that miserably <laughs> because there were there were a couple times that we got into firefights and I went and ran towards the the gunfire and where my purpose as their security is to get them off the X. But I was like, I'm going for him. Well, so how does that work out with them? Because I've never heard someone really say that, that, that they did the opposite of what they were supposed to do. Does that work out well for your principal or does that put you at odds? So in this case, it worked out well because the guy that was with me, um, this, the specific incidents that comes to mind, we were, it was in Khajur, Afghanistan, and this was the hottest place in the time. And the whole reason I was there is because I was a Green Beret without a CIB. And I had a CAB from when I was a 13 Fox and deployed to Iraq, but I didn't have a CIB. And so I went to the Sergeant Major's office and said, Hey, Sergeant Major, I want to get my CIB on this trip. We don't have anything going on for the next four days. Is it okay if I go out and hang out with the teams for a couple days and try to get in a firefight? And he was like, yeah, I don't see a problem with it. He's like, just go find out who's getting in the most ticks and book yourself a flight there. And so I called the team sergeant who was one of my SEER instructors when I went through the Q course. And I said, Hey, is it okay if I come out for a couple of days and we go try to try to have some fun? And he's like, well, we don't have to try to have fun. It happens every day down here. So come on down. We're more than happy to have you. <laughs> and yeah, so I showed up out there and a, a high ranking individual, I won't mention him by name, but wanted to come along on the trip, which immediately gave me bad rapport with the team because now I brought the flagpole out with me. And so I get out there and he ends up wanting to go out on a little presence patrol in town. And the whole, again, the whole reason we were out there and they all knew this was so that I could try to get my CIB. And so we're out on a presence patrol and we start getting hit with machine gun fire and everybody drops down into a ditch. And every time we peeked our heads up, they just open up, but from a different position. So they're maneuvering on us and machine guns are talking. We're returning fire. It'll slow down. But as soon as we start to stand up, it'll open up again. So we knew that you know, we're getting to the point where it's getting late. We're getting dehydrated. We've been out for, for hours. I have this huge jammer on my back that sticks like six feet up. And we were running out of ammo. So it was like we need to get fast movers in here because that will get them to, to scatter out of here. And so the JTAC needed to get onto a rooftop and... As an FO, I was also JFO qualified. So I was like, I'll go. He needed somebody. He's just like, I need one to go with me. And so I was like, I got you. And I get up out of the ditch and we're running along the wall that surrounds this compound. And machine gun, like bullets are following us along the wall as we're running, like right behind us. It was nuts. And 
So we get in there and I had this huge jammer on. So I would kick the door and he would go in first and then I would come in ass first, bending the antenna over. And we finally made our way onto the rooftop. No one was in the house. So we get up on the rooftop. We finally got him out of there. But then after we got back, you know, the Sergeant Major, like he was the the one that was with me. He was, he was still one of the, like, he wanted to be in the fight. So he like, we got back and I talked to him and I apologized. And I was like, I went about that the completely wrong way. And he was like, you couldn't have held me back if you had a leash on me. So don't worry about it. And I was like, okay, glad that worked out. But it was a lesson learned for myself. Uh, with all this happening uh, on your third deployment, you enjoying everything that you're doing, how's your mental state? At that point, it was, it was pretty good. Um, I... Yeah, at, at that point, there really weren't any indicators that that come to mind. I went, yeah, because I continued to grow my resume as soon as I got back from that. And some opportunities opened themselves up to me that just progressed my career even further. And so at that point, like, I think honestly, like, it fed it fed me it, it like that deployment just gave me a whole new purpose a new reason to succeed and like i was i was motivated after that i was like this is the best decision i have ever made when you say fed though that's an that's a strange word i think to use or maybe an interesting word however you want to do it do you mean fed the ego or fed I don't even know how to say it, but that's like fueled me. Okay. It it fueled my fire. It, it verified that I got it. What I thought it was going to be. It was. Okay. Um, there were, there were no expectations that weren't met. Okay. Okay. And, And which is different because you said the regular army really didn't meet your expectations. So it's good. So you're on an upswing. The reason I ask that though, is you're on your third combat deployment. Uh, you come back, uh, I think you equip with a dive team now, uh, Mm -hmm. and then head back to Afghanistan, correct? Yeah. I, um, I did some schools in between there. So as soon as I got back, I, they asked me to try out for the dive team. And so I did. And they kept me. <laughs> they, they put up with me. Um, I, I'm actually a really solid swimmer. Um, I It took some getting used to to be able to swim deep. Like surface swimming. So, so my tests... First day I showed up to the dive team. They're like, hey, we're going to go do an open water swim. Don't unpack your shit. And so we go out to the bay and we did a 3,000 meter swim. And I was the second one back. And they were just like, cool, you're the next one to go to dive school. And I was like, great. 
So, but then the following Monday, we went out and we did pool PT, which is drown proofing. If you don't know what it is, look it up on YouTube. It's pretty interesting. Um, when I went ahead. to dive school, they called it underwater problem solving. Yeah. yeah. So we go out, you know, hands and feet are bound and we're going through all of the initial testing for the first like two weeks of CDQC. And then they realize like, oh, Zach's a good swimmer, but he is not comfortable in deep, dark places <laughs> with his hands tied behind his back. And so, yeah, we had we had to work on it a little bit from there. But... Yeah, made it over to the dive team. And then shortly after that, um, we got a slot for Sephardic, which is the Special Forces Advanced Reconnaissance Target Analysis and Exploitations Techniques course. Huge acronym. And yeah, we went. I, I got a slot. I got offered the spot for it because I had the highest shooting scores on the team. And that fed my drive even more because that's the coolest three months of your life and yeah it was it was awesome so i got done with that and i was like fired up again like new lease on life like you couldn't stop me when you get through all this you go on your fourth deployment how far in on this deployment are you before you uh receive the injury Five months. Of how long? Five months on a six-month deployment. So we had a month okay. left. Okay. Yep. So I just want to quickly go over the story because it's going to lend to later on in your story. But you climb up on an RG-33. Well, first you went and took a dump. Uh, people yeah, were watching. too hard. Like, <laughs> you don't know. I don't think that was it. But, yeah, I'll <laughs> go with you on that. I'll follow you down that rabbit hole. So you come back, you get on an RG-33. Now, that's a pretty tall vehicle. Um, you're you're getting your stuff for that night. Uh, and then that's it, right? That, like, it goes black. The world goes black, and that's it. Yeah, I remember saying to myself in my head, I made the guard roster for all the uplift guys that were out with us that night because we're just sleeping out in the, in the middle of the desert. And... I made the guard roster. Everybody knew where they needed to be. And I was like, okay, I'm going to climb up, get in my rucksack, change my socks and t-shirt, and then I'm ready to sleep. And that was it. Like, I remember having that thought. I don't know. I don't remember climbing on the truck. I was just found next to the truck having a seizure. So you don't know if you even fell off the truck. So... No, we don't know. Nobody, nobody saw it. And, and I had retrograded amnesia or I, I think so. I could, I can't remember like any of it. And yeah, I, I did wake up though with, so I was found on my back, but the front of my head was like the worst, like it was bruised. It like, every indicator that I smashed my head on something at some point, but I don't know if that was while I was climbing up on the truck or how high up I was on the truck, but yeah, we don't know. I had a, I, we later found out that I did have a TBI and I had a grand mal seizure. 
So here's the first question out of all this. When all this happens, you, you by all accounts, your your life couldn't be better. You you've done everything you wanted to, you're going everywhere, you're getting all the certifications you want, and then this happens. Um does it take an immediate hit to the mental faculties or are you still good kind of looking long-term on it instead of short-term? Because I have a feeling a lot of people would think short-term in this situation. So I got medevaced from where we were back to Kandahar. And as soon as I landed in Kandahar, the docks came, our special forces specific docs came and kicked all the regular army docs out of the room and they were like hey the report like what we heard was you had a seizure out there they weren't there obviously but they're like we heard you had a seizure and they're like sometimes these things can happen from sleep deprivation dehydration we had been out for like four or five days at this point and so that wasn't out of the realm of possibility. And they said, we're gonna just hope that this was a a one-off and see what happens. Because if we report it as a seizure, it's gonna be a career ender for you. So they're like, we're not gonna report it that way. We'll, We'll take care of it. And yeah, so I went, I flew back to my base, met, back up with my team, finished up the rest of the deployment, no other issues. And then it was probably, I think maybe two weeks after I had gotten home, I had another seizure. And then I had another one shortly after that. And so I was like, okay, I don't wanna, at this point I was working towards my career towards the direct action route and they don't want you running and gunning in a house if you're going to have seizures. And I don't want to put guys at risk if I don't know what's going to happen. So I reported it and they sent me to a neurologist. They did a full brain workup. And the same day they said, Hey, you have an epileptic brain wave consistently. Like you're having small seizures, not losing consciousness, but your brain is having seizure activity over the four hours that we monitored you, you had like 10. And (laughs) wow. So, yeah. So at that point though, the option was we will move you to an admin job, the B team or ops or wherever, or up to group headquarters, but we'll have to, we're going to put you at a desk for two years. If you go two years without a seizure, you can go back to the teams. So I initially was on board with that, but it takes, once that seizure threshold is lowered, seizures become more frequent. And to figure out what pharmaceutical concoction is going to control your seizures is a a process of elimination. So, The first meds that they did didn't stop it. The second meds didn't. The third meds kind of did. Then they added another one to it. And so after, you know, six months, every time I would have a seizure, I would, that two-year timeline restarts. And so after like six months, I was like, I need some sort of, like, 
I need something. Um, this this what if isn't going to last forever. I need to make the decision. What am I going to do? So I said, hey, let's just proceed forward with the med board. I won't fight it. And so we med boarded out. And that starts the next chapter. <laughs> Let me go back to it, though, for a second. When it first happens, they put you on desk duty. And I, I want as honest answer as you can give. What are you more scared of? More scared of getting really hurt and dying or not being able to do that job you've worked so hard to do? Not being able to do that job. So when you're there, how hard is this decision? After you have these seizures, you can't get it under control. You decide to do the med board. I've got to understand what's going on in your brain because it has to be like a donkey kicking you over and over again with as hard as you've worked. And you just honestly saying you were more worried about not being able to do the job than dying. You mm -hmm. got to talk me through that and tell me what you're feeling. Let's go into deeper about that because it's not just this is the next chapter. Let's talk about because this is where it really takes a turn. Um, so I, if I couldn't do that job, I like there, there is a stigma behind like the people that sit in a desk job, the, the guys and I hope it's gotten better, but at this time, you know, 2013, 2014, like if you had a guy that was sitting in an S shop office or on the B team for years, it was like, what's wrong with this guy? Is he incompetent? Is he unfit? Why isn't he going back to a team? I didn't want to have that reputation. So it was a better option if, and you know, after we still can't figure out what's going to stop my seizures, it was a better option for me to get out of the army than to become that guy. But that's where I got to interrupt you. You're not that guy. There's a medical condition that is stopping you from doing it. You're not just a guy saying, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to be out there. As a matter of fact, you want to do it more than anything. You have a reason why you're there. You already have a reputation. People know that's what I'm trying to understand is you're already known. People know who you are. They know you can handle yourself. They know why you're there. You understand where I'm going, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, and I've never really thought, I guess it was an ego thing. If I'm completely honest. Okay. Um, it, if I couldn't do, if I couldn't like, if I couldn't do the job fully and like I wanted, so, all right, we're getting into it early. We're getting into it early. Some so, would say. So we've got to back up even more because this is some recent stuff that I've unpacked and I've actually okay. never talked, never talked about this. Um, the, now in my own therapy, I do. I have a great therapist I speak with once a week and work through my thoughts and and make sense of it all. And so we never really talked about why I joined the army. The okay. Interview. And 
I wasn't that kid that had that forgotten country, like, I want to be a patriot. It wasn't that. It was a way out of Indiana, but it was even more than that. I was pretty depressed as a teenager. And, you know, on, you know, no behavioral health record or anything, but was very depressed, but would never, never wanted suicide wasn't an option um, because suicide just always felt like a coward's way out. And my thoughts on that have changed as well. But at this time in my life, that that was my mindset. And so joining the military, I thought maybe this will be an honorable way out. Okay. I, I want to make sure I understand, though. You're saying an assisted suicide. In in a sense, yeah. Like I okay. wasn't going to go. I wasn't going to go purposely try. Of to course be, not. But you're saying fun. if it were to I'm happen, gonna, if it were to happen, like I didn't. I wasn't scared of it. I, and, okay. and maybe that's why I was why I was successful is because I like death hasn't ever been really a fear. Okay. So. Yeah. So. If I couldn't do a job where that was still that adrenaline, that chance, then what's the point in doing it was kind of where my head was at that time. Like, I don't want to, and this is, this is also, this, this goes to show that I was pretty immature at this point in my life. Still, I was 29 years old and so I didn't, it, the mission, the big mission, like the, the mission as a whole, my team's mission was important to me, but I didn't see the big picture still of, I can still contribute to this cause from an outside perspective. I didn't, I didn't see it that way. It was like, it's either going to be all or nothing. And yeah. So once I couldn't do a job where there was a chance I wasn't going to come home from it anymore. It didn't, it wasn't appealing to me anymore. And, and this is all recently since you've been with this therapist, you've unpacked this and figured this out. Yeah. I'd say in the last six months. So why do you think it took, because when you look at that at a base level, that's a very simple answer. When you look at it, that's a very simple answer. You know why you did it now. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it took so long to figure that out? Maybe I, I, I just didn't want to admit it. Okay. You know, um, but so a lot of this too, and as we, as we unfold the rest of, of this story in the last two years, I spent a lot of time in bed and I had a lot of time to reflect. I couldn't distract myself with, working out, with going to the range, with training, with anything. I was stuck in a bed for for 10 months. And you're in that position, like, it's, you got to just figure out, like, you have to start unpacking the shit that's been building up for years and years and years. And as I started to unpack one thing, another, another suitcase shows up and I start to unpack that and another one. And I realized how far back 
things went. And they had just been compounding and compounding for years. And then it finally, and, and I found distractions for all of them. And then it finally came to a T when I couldn't distract myself anymore. And it was like, you gotta, you gotta figure this out now. And that's when I really realized that like, oh, this has actually been like an ongoing thing. The military was even a distraction from it. I've heard people say they unpack the box, you know, I've never heard someone. And that's a great thing. How you described this that a suitcase arrived and then another one and then another one came behind it. I've never heard anyone describe it that way. My question to that is, is when those suitcases arrive, is it one thing that you're looking at or is it just a, just a shit show of everything in that suitcase? And then another one shows up and it's just all over the place. Or when these suitcases arrive, are they specific things that you're looking at? Specific incidents, specific actions, things like that. And then you move on to the next one and learn from it. Or is it just everything just compounded time after time after time? So for me, it's initially like I'll have, I'll be good for weeks and it'll not. And, and when I say good, like, It'll be one thing and then another thing will show up and I can tackle them one after the other. But then every once in a while, there's that day where it just feels like the sky's falling and everything's coming at you at once. And it just feels so overwhelming that you just don't know even where to begin. And so a little bit of it's, it's kind of a hybrid and at that, you know, when, when I was in the hospital and every day felt overwhelming because it was, because there wasn't anything I could even do about anything, um, except try to live another day. That was all I could really do at that time in my life. And yeah, so I think now it's gotten to where it's it's one thing. I tackle one problem. I focus on one problem once I'm done with that. Or, or it's at least controllable. Then I have that much energy to put towards the next suitcase. And, and, and this is, do you see looking into the future? And I don't even know if you can answer this question. Do you see looking in the future that this ever ending? I hope so. Um, I... Over the course of, of the last two years, I have put a lot of effort into allowing myself to grow and, and to learn from the mistakes I've made in the past. And, you know, I wouldn't change a single one of them, but I acknowledge them and I learn from them and so I hope that as I continue to learn that eventually, you know, it's probably, it's not going to go away completely. We're always going to have stressors in our life, Absolutely. you know, but I hope that I eventually get to the point where I'm just dealing with the surprise, surprise stressors and not the implications of actions I've made in the past. So let me ask you with all this, are you comfortable in your own skin? Yes. Now. How long? 
How long has it been since you've been comfortable in your own skin? Um, not too long, four or five months. Really? Yeah. Let's talk about what you're doing when you get out, what your purpose is, and then how's it with your family getting out? Uh, and how is it with not just your family, but your, your, your close circle? How are you with them after you get out? And then what are you doing? Cause this is going to lead into the injuries. So initially I got out, didn't have the best plan. I had a job lined up, but I didn't really think it through. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there. So also another thing I might get some shit for. Um, my first job after leaving the teams was with Lululemon. Okay. Yeah. Athleisure. So. <laughs> <laughs> I got a guy in my office that wears nothing but Lululemon. It's comfortable as hell, man. That's what I hear. My wife's worked for him for 11 years. So most of my wardrobe consists of Lululemon. All right. But I realized pretty quickly that I was not the best fit for that culture. Oh, okay. What do you mean by that? So they have a lot more liberal views than myself and the culture that I was accustomed to for my entire adulthood up to that point. And so that being the first experience I had outside of the military, it was like shock. And so I, you know, I left on good terms. I just said, Hey, I don't think this is a good fit for me. And I moved on and I had already been planning. So I I did it for six months and I realized probably three months in that like, this isn't a forever thing for me. All right. So you, you leave Lululemon. We talk about you and I had talked before the show uh, that we want to talk about purpose. The military has gone. That purpose is kind of gone. Lululemon doesn't work out. Are you trying to figure out like, are you thinking at least in your head, maybe I don't have purpose. Maybe I don't have this. Or are you, you, you funneling down really hard to figure out what it is. So this is one area that Lululemon actually served me really well was part of their, their culture, if you will, is they enforced that you have goals you write them down you meet with your superiors and you talk about those goals outside of lululemon and so cycling had always been a really good outlet for me when i was angry when i was you know anxious depressed frustrated whatever i would get on the bike and i would pedal it out and i always loved biking more than running because you get to see more you cover more ground in the same amount of time So I decided when I was writing out these goals with Lululemon, and then you have to write out like the steps you're taking to reach towards those. I said, I want to bike across America. I want to see 
you know, I grew up in Indiana and then I was stationed in Germany, New York, back in Germany, Fort Bragg, Florida, and then deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I wanted to see the U.S. I wanted to see this country that I've been working for, for, for the last 10 and a half years. And I'd never seen the Rocky Mountains. So I decided I want to ride a bicycle across the country at some point. So I came up with this plan and I pitched it to Task Force Dagger, which is how I know Jeff Dardia, one of your prior guests. And I said, hey, I'd like to do this. You guys are facilitating non-pharmaceutical treatments for TBIs. And I had already kind of developed a passion for the non-pharmaceutical therapies, if you will, by the seizure meds that I was prescribed, one in particular was called Keppra. And it worked, it stopped my seizures, but it has all these psychotic side effects, known psychotic side effects. And in conjunction with PTSD, with anxiety, with TBIs, which exacerbated the symptoms of both of those. And now with this medication, it just pushed me over the edge. And it wasn't necessarily in a, a suicidal or, or depressive way at that point, but angry at everyone. And like quick to snap. I mean, if you cut me off in traffic, I'm, I'm following you to your house and trying to fight you. Like, that's how bad it was to the point. And I, I recognize it, though. I was aware that this isn't like me. I'm usually in more control than this. And I went to the doctors and I said, hey, I think these pills are causing this. I've done my research. This is a known side effect. I'm definitely seeing it. And they said, well, your seizures are stopped, so we're not going to take you off of it. And so the answer was, here's a bunch of benzodiazepines, here's a bunch of SSRIs, and they just turned me into a zombie. And then I said, hey, now I'm just sleeping all day, and when I am awake, I don't remember it the next day. I don't want to live this way. I would rather have seizures than live this way. And then they're like, well, here are some amphetamines you had ADD as a kid anyways, this will help keep you up. And I was just like, how is this the solution? And so I started speaking out about it and the VA had sent me for a third party neurology exam in Minneapolis. And the doctor that I went to wasn't associated with the VA, whatever he did the VA's portion of the exam. And then he was like, okay, we're done with that now. I want to talk to you about something else. And he said, have you ever thought about cannabis to treat your seizures? And I said, nope. It was still, there was a lot of stigma around it. It was still a very taboo subject at the time. So I said, no, I haven't thought about it. And he said, you should, because you would probably have a life-changing experience. It would allow you to get off of these pharmaceuticals that are causing all these problems and it would control your seizures. And there are strains out there that can do just that, that don't have any psychotropic effects. You'll still be able to function. 
So I did my research and ended up ordering some an oral CBD tincture and I started using it and then I slowly weaned off my seizure meds fully accepting that I may have a seizure again, but at this point I didn't care and I didn't. And I just, I waited and, you know, for a while it's like waiting for the other foot to drop. Eventually it's going to happen, but it just didn't. And so I had this goal of riding a bicycle across the country. I, had a relationship with task force dagger who works with non-pharmaceutical therapies for veterans and i was like i'm gonna i want to do this for you guys i want to set up fundraisers i want to see what i can do to raise awareness around non-pharmaceutical treatments around the the suicide awareness rate everything kind of mental health encompass into this ride and all the proceeds that we raise along the way will go to task force dagger so that's ended up coming to fruition. You know, I put it out there to the universe. I I brought on my good friend, Adam Smith. He was a former 19th group guy and he came, helped me logistically. He drove the support vehicle while I rode a bike. And then eventually we brought on another driver so that he could ride with me. And then by the end of it, it was kind of like a Forrest Gump thing where we just had like a whole trail of bike riders finishing in Florida with us. And it was, you know, but it was exactly what you were asking. It was my new purpose. And that purpose was to, to, to let the rest of the veteran community know, or at least as many as I can in, in that reach while I'm going across the country that like, Hey, the VA, they're going to give you the easiest option, but not necessarily the best option. Can I ask you something right there? I don't really want to interrupt you, but what's your thoughts on the VA? Are you angry at them? Do you think that I've heard a lot of people say, look, uh, just last week, the, the guy I was telling you about, he, he said, look, it, it's not their fault. They're working with the tools they got. Do you agree with that statement or do you think there's a different answer? Um, I mean, the VA as a whole, I agree with that. They're working with the tools they got. The decision makers in Washington, however, I think could allow the VA to have some better tools. I'm I mean, yeah, I am angry with the VA. Um, and when we when we get into the later parts of this story, um, they they left me to die. And okay, yeah. So I'm I'm angry about that. At this point in my life, I wasn't angry. I knew the VA is not going to prescribe CBD to to me, so because they can't. Um, so I wasn't mad at them at this point. They're working like, yeah, I would say at this point in it, they're working with what they got. It is what it is. Did you try any other therapies? And I, I'm talking like the cryogenic therapy, SGB therapy, um, anything like that. Did you try any other therapies before uh, you went down the non-pharmaceutical route? At that point, I had done... Botox treatments for migraines associated with TBIs. I, and then everything else that they had offered was pharmaceutical. 
So, and I. That's a question that I always have. Why do you think with as much as they're seeing with the results that they're seeing from people doing this alternative therapies and these alternative methods, why is it so slow to be brought online and be a, a standardized um, solution? My thoughts are because they'll lose money. Um, we soldiers, veterans, we are, we're a number and it's, they, they have turned us into little independent businesses that they can keep making money off of. So, you know, send, send you to war, come back, prescribe all these meds. They're getting kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies. And if they heal, you know, it's, it's the same. So like the, you know, race for the cure supports breast cancer awareness and breast cancer research and claims that they want to cure breast cancer. It's not in their best interest to cure breast cancer because all their executives would be out of jobs if breast cancer goes away. VA doesn't want to cure or the government doesn't want to cure mental health because they'll lose all that money from the pharmaceutical companies it's better for them to just keep you medicated and going to hopefully keep you quieter from raising a ruckus about shit you see that's unfit in our government. I, uh, I, I, I thought you would say that, but I wanted to make sure that that was the, the line of reasoning. Cause that's the way a lot of line of reasoning is for guys is that, um, you know, the, the money's not in the cure, the money's in the medication. Yeah. Uh, the money, the money's in, in working on it, I guess you would say, um, to finish it out. Uh, let's talk about your first injury. After all this happens, you do the bike ride across the United States, you're doing races, you've got kind of a new purpose. Um, let's talk about the first injury during the half Ironman. So I came back from that ride across America and was offered a job coaching in endurance athletes. And a lot of my athletes that I coached were triathletes. I worked specifically on the cycling. I had some people that just were competitive cyclists, but the majority of them were triathletes. And so I focused with them on their cycling. And I wanted to understand psychologically where they're at, though, because the bike in a triathlon's in the middle. They just swam. They still have to run afterwards. I had only known competitive cycling, so I wanted to understand psychologically what that's like. And so I started doing triathlons. And I was doing a half Ironman in Minnesota. I was roughly... 36 miles into the bike leg and was in third place. So I was trying to catch first and second coming down a hill into an intersection. I saw them go or I saw them in front of me. It was raining like crazy that day too. So every, we were briefed that the intersections would be controlled by cops. They'd be clearly marked, whatever. As I'm approaching this intersection, I'm not seeing any markings. So I assume I'm just going through and that there's a cop controlling it. Well, as I got closer, I realized the cop was 
in the parking lot of the gas station on the corner fucking with the lights on top of his vehicle instead of controlling traffic in the intersection. I don't know if he didn't expect people to be coming through that early or what, but there was nobody controlling it. And as I approached, the light turned and it was wet out, but I was going 25 miles plus an hour. And if I had hit my brakes, I would have slid into that intersection and probably gone under a car. So in this split second time frame, I analyzed it, determined the best chance I'm going to have is to try to just get through it. And if I do hit a car, it's going to be on the side. That's better than going under it and, you know, hope for the best. And I had enough time mentally, you know, all reality, it was probably two seconds, but I had enough time as I saw a car coming on the cross traffic that I was made the determination to rotate in my seat so that if I do go over the handlebars, I'll hit with my shoulder and not face plant into the windshield. So, and I, I, you know, applied pressure to my brakes, trying to slow myself as much as possible while maintaining control of the bike. But yeah, I hit right over the driver's side front wheel, um, right into the side. I went over the handlebars and I remember bouncing off the windshield and thinking that wasn't that bad. And I was like, if my bike's okay, I can still finish this. And then I saw the sky and the ground for like the sixth time because I was just flipping through the air. <laughs> and I, I was like, this is going to suck when I hit the ground. And I told myself, just go limp. Just go limp. Don't try to brace yourself. Just go limp. And I hit face like right here. And but I scorpioned. So my back bent backwards. And it was lights out once I hit the ground, though. And it cracked my helmet, fractured my, my eye socket, and broke my L5. And then I developed compartment syndrome in my hip from the impact of where the windshield hit my side. So whole leg fills up with fluid, but it didn't actually break the skin. So it doesn't have anywhere to go. And it was draining so fast that, or it was getting inflamed so fast that they had to manually open it up in order to relieve the pressure and save my leg. So entire thigh and across my top of my butt cheek and lower back was just opened wide up. It was like a 24 inch incision and they left it that way for about two weeks and it had a wound back in just sucking all the fluid out, kept me heavily medicated and, you know, treated the, this was another TBI now. So treated that and yeah, then it was just rehab from there. So here's the injury right here. So let's talk about what happened, what all this is. Cause it looks nasty. So yeah, that's, that's my butt cheek. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was the skin. So I didn't have, it didn't like 
cut the skin, the impact on the car. It was just soft tissue trauma and just basically my entire ass cheek popped. And it just fluid. And initially when I showed up at the emergency room, the concern was my back and the brain injury. And so that had everybody's attention. They took me to a trauma one ER. So they immediately scanned my entire body and back and head were the two priorities. And so that's what they're focused on. And my pelvis, my femurs, everything were intact. So I had told them, Hey, this is really uncomfortable back here. I don't know what's going on. They were like, dude, you were hit by a car. It's it's not going to feel great. Sorry. And they just gave me some more Dilaudid and continued stitching up my face, all that. And, you know, 30 minutes would go by and I'd be like, guys, something's not right. And they were like, we're going to get you some more medicine. We're sorry. We'll get you more comfortable. And they just push more drugs. And it wasn't until about three or four hours after I had been at the ER when they were actually getting me admitted into a room for the night that a buddy of mine, the guy that owned the gym that I coached at, he came up there and he's talking to me and he can see like at this point, I was up until this point, I was playing it pretty cool. And like, I was trusting the doctors. I was like, okay, if you say like, and I wasn't like openly, like crying, screaming, like it wasn't like that, but it was just like, this is the worst pain of my life. And I'm not going to tell you that, but I've never felt anything like this before. So my buddy, Danny pulls the doctor out in the hallway and he's like, Hey man, he was like, he's not the same as your typical patient. He, you're asking him, where is it on a one to 10? And his pride alone isn't going to let him tell you that it's more than a five. But if it's a five, then it's a 10 for what you're used to. And so the doc came back in and he's like, hey, just to be safe, we're going to send you downstairs, do another scan of that leg, see if we missed anything. So they did. And they compared it to the first one and the amount of fluid in my leg was like four times in four hours. And so they immediately came in, like while I was still in the machine, they came in and they're like, hey, we need you to sign this. You're going for emergency surgery right now. If we don't, you're not going to have a leg tomorrow. And they took me back. I was in surgery for, I think, about eight hours. And I woke up and I immediately looked over at my leg because I was like, man, I hope I have a sick scar. And I didn't have a scar yet. It was just that huge hole. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So now you're back in a hospital bed. Um, Not unlike with the military, with being put at the desk, you had a purpose, you get out, you find a new purpose, you start this drive and you're back out of it again. We, we got to talk. The mental state has got to be deteriorating by now. For sure. I think that was the first time that, like, I really was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. 
Like up until then, it was like, could have happened to anybody, you know? But once that happened, it was like, seriously, guys? And yeah, um, on top of the mental state deteriorating, I was also very medicated at this time. So that impaired a lot of my judgment and decision making. Um, when I left the hospital, they sent me home with like a bucket of Dilaudid, morphine and Percocet, like a 90 day supply with like four refills. Okay. So with you just doing the non-pharmaceutical thing with you teaming up with Jeff and then this happens, are, are you against it? Are you for it? Are you trying to get rid of the pain? You gotta be in a weird mind state right now. I had never really used pain medicine before opiates. Um, okay. Before this, I had had I had had surgeries, um, but it was like, like I remember I had one surgery on my stomach. I was in the hospital for seven days in two thousand eight. And they took my stomach and wrapped it around my esophagus and sewed it to itself. So it was like an intense surgery. But I didn't even take the pain meds that they sent me home with afterwards. Because I I didn't even know that like pain meds did anything for you. So, but when I was in the hospital and that compartment syndrome was setting in and I was in bad pain they started IV injecting Dilaudid, fentanyl, morphine around the clock. And so I didn't know that, I mean, at this point, like I knew like opiates were an abuse drug um, and I knew that these were opiates, but I didn't know, like, like I never understood why people abuse them because I had never experienced the, the rush, if you will. So that was the first time, but yeah, I, I was medicated while I was in the hospital, but I identified fairly quickly, um, that I didn't want to be addicted to these meds and I didn't want to build up the tolerance, um, to where they would control me. I had been, I had been on IV narcotics for about two or three weeks. And then when I went home, I took the pills for maybe a week. And then I was like, Hey, we're done. We're done with these. I told my wife, I'm going to be an asshole. I'm probably going to like throw up and poop a lot, but let's just get through this because I don't want to go down this road later in life. So I was very conscious and aware of it at that point. And I, I did, I got off of it and, and didn't turn back. So at that, you know, I, they were there during the time that I needed it, but then it was easy to recognize like, okay, I don't need these anymore. It's time to let it go. So with all this and you recovering from this, what's your purpose now? So. I was stuck for a little bit and I went, I, I, 
I started falling back into just what was comfortable, what was easy, you know, and, you know, I had to do a couple months of physical, like I was in a wheelchair for two months, then I was upgraded to a walker for two months, and then I was able to start getting around on my own. And so I was doing that rehab process and I wanted just something to do. So I was working at a bicycle shop as a mechanic, just wrenching on bikes and hanging out in Florida. I had moved back to Florida from Minneapolis during this time. So hanging out, being a beach bum, rehabbing, going to physical therapy. This was the first time in my life I actually first started talking to a therapist too, because during that rehab time, I didn't have that physical outlet. I didn't have fitness to distract me. And I had to start asking myself some questions. And part of that process was I asked myself, when was the last time I was really happy? When was the last time I was fulfilled? When was the last time I felt gratitude? And what I kept coming back to was when I was on the teams with the boys and deploying. And, you know, it was funny listening to Jeff Dardia's podcast with you. And he talks about how like the comfort in deployment, like deployments become more comfortable than your time at home. I always related with that because when I was home and, and I still do this to an extent now, when I'm home, I try to make it all about everyone around me. So that when I'm gone, I don't feel guilty. I try to give you everything that I can while I'm here. And then when I'm gone, I can worry about my job and myself. And in a way, it recharged me to be able to come home and give myself to everyone else then. So I had been home for a while and I missed it. And I missed, maybe it was also some of, some of that childhood stuff coming back where it was like, maybe I didn't want to want to be around. And this was a chance I could take that might fulfill that honorably. And yeah, so I started just really focusing on, I looked up. I, I was able to figure out who, what companies had certain contracts that I wanted to go back overseas and work on. And I started applying to those companies. And then I started looking up their, their PT standards and making sure that I would be able to, if they were willing to hire me, that I would be able to fulfill those standards. And I ended up the, the number one program that I wanted to get on, I was accepted for. And so that became my new purpose was rehabbing my body so that I could get back overseas and do that job. Or, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the same job by any means, but I could be with the boys again. And, you know, in a, in a sense, I missed experiencing hardship. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? You've well, been in a bed and rehab. What, what are you talking about? You miss hardship. We, we just talked about where you wake up and you go, what the fuck? Are you serious? I, I mean, that's a hardship. But I was just, I mean, 
it's that was a lot of small victories. Like I'm able to walk on the treadmill, small victory. I'm now able to do the stairmaster, small victory. I'm now able to use the leg press machine, small victory. I wanted like those are things that like you do it and you like give yourself a little pat on the back. And but real hardship, like I wanted that feeling. Like I think a lot of people from the veteran community and from the law enforcement community can can relate to this. But when you have a really fucked up day and you get back and you like you get some hot chow, a shower, and you sit down, you take your boots off and you're reflecting on all of it. There's also an, a sense of accomplishment that follows that. And, and I missed that accomplishment. I wasn't, that wasn't being fulfilled anywhere else. Okay. All right. So, Let me ask you a question though. If you go back over and be a contractor, you're doing with the alternatives. Now you're not taking your seizure medication and stuff. Are you still good to go by? So at this point I hadn't had, so 2015 was the last seizure I'd had. Even after I got hit by the car in 2016, I didn't have any more seizures. Um, and so 2018 was when I started contracting. So at this point I had been three years seizure free. Okay. All right. So I just came off of all of it and didn't have any more seizures. Okay. So I really, in hindsight, so I was diagnosed with epilepsy and I'm, I'm not a neurologist, but I've, I've done my own reading and I've spoken to a lot of neurologists and, you know, the initial neurologist I saw diagnosed me with epilepsy. I never got a second opinion from the military for that. It could have been that I had a TBI and had, you know, there is like post TBI epilepsy is an actual diagnosis. Now, if I did dive off that truck or hit my head on something while climbing up that truck, that could have caused epilepsy for a matter of months. And over time, that threshold came back and I'm not going to have seizures. Now we might've debunked that theory later on, but at this point in my life, three years, no seizures. I was like, I'm just going to try to come off of all of it and get back to work. So, yeah. So that was my purpose. So I, I weaned off that CBD tincture I was using. I was in the gym. I got to where I could meet all the standards I got accepted into the program. However, my security clearance had lapsed. So we had to reapply for a new security clearance. And so in the meantime, I got picked up by DOD to be an SRT instructor at Fort, good old Fort Leonard Wood. What a horrible place. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my my extended family is all from St. Louis, and I still had some aunts and uncles up in St. Louis, so it was cool to be close to them. And like, if you get outside of Fort Leonard Wood, I lived in an airstream up there, and so I would go to Ozarks and go camping on the weekends. And then I had buddies that had farms all over, so I'd just park my airstream on their farms, crash there, and 
Yeah, it was kind of like uh, Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon, just me and my trailer doing cop things. Okay, all right. I don't know if I would compare to that uh, character, but uh, he... All right, but uh, we, we also need to talk about Roadhouse later, but that's a separate story. Um, so so you're there doing SRT. Uh, you're doing instruction. Once again, you have purpose. You're really back in the military. You're with, not the boys, but you're in a definitely a more uh, structured environment for that. Mm-hmm. When you contract, no problems going back over and contracting, right? No injuries, no problems, no anything like that. Nope. But when you come uh, back from a deployment is when you suffer another injury, correct? Correct. 2020. Okay. So you've been contracting for two years now, 2020. Mm-hmm. Two and okay, a half. And I was about two and a half years in. Where were you at? I was in Iraq for this one. Okay. And COVID hit. So we couldn't like everything stopped even for us over there um wasn't weren't allowed to leave the base you know so we went down to minimal manning what we needed to keep the base secure everybody else they were like go home we'll let you know when it's safe to come back so i had been there 60 days so i was like hey i'm good with going home let guys that just came over here and are counting on this paycheck let them stay And I came home and everything in Florida shut down immediately. And I wanted some shit to do. So I made the decision to go kayaking without realizing, well, I mean, I realized it, but I didn't give it much thought, but I had also gotten some fresh tattoo work done about two weeks prior. And so we went kayaking and then I also cut my leg getting out of the dock one day. And so some dirty water apparently got in my leg and it ended up being a bacterial infection that surfaced in my knee. And it swells, right? To like the size of a basketball. So initially I went to bed, sat, uh, so Saturday, I was out all day long riding motorcycles with my friends, hanging out, and got home, went to bed, no issues, crossover into Sunday morning, like 3 a.m., I wake up, and I'm like, man, my knee is real stiff. It wasn't, you know, over the top, but it was just like oddly uncomfortable, and so I got up to go in the other room and turn the lights on and look at it. And it was kind of red and it was warm to the touch, which I wasn't in 18 Delta, but I know that those aren't usually good signs. So I took some time with as much time you've spent in a hospital. You're, you're good to go on saying (laughs) what's right and what's wrong. So yeah, it was, it was red, a little bit swollen and warm to the touch. And it just felt real stiff and like real tight. So I took some Tylenol, walked around, tried to loosen it up, got back in bed, was able to fall back asleep, woke up at like seven o'clock in the morning. And now it looks like a kneecap's growing on top of my kneecap. So I thought maybe I got bit by a spider, you know, we, I would find brown recluses and black widows in the house all the time. 
I was like, maybe that something bit me while I was sleeping. So I went to the urgent care and they looked at it at the time. I was also just coming back from deployment where COVID had like COVID was already going on for like the last month that I was over there. So I was spending like a month just basically the only thing we could do was like work out and eat chow. So that's what I was doing. So I was like 240 pounds, a good 240. But the doctor looked at me and he was like, you look like you work out a lot. And I said, yeah. And he said, I think you just have an overuse injury. I'm going to give you a steroid injection, give it two days and you should be good to go. And I was like, all right, easy enough. So he does. And I go home and I was good for like two days. And then Tuesday I woke up and it was, it was real bad. And now I like couldn't even bend my leg. So I called the orthopedic doctor that they gave me his business card and said, if it continued to be a problem to follow up with him, I called him and I said, Hey, I think I need to come see you today. I was in the urgent care this weekend, blah, blah, blah. He's like, okay, I don't have any availability. I was like, I really don't think this can wait. And he said, can you email me some pictures of what's going on? So I emailed him some pictures and he said, you're absolutely right. Come in right now. So I headed over into Destin, Florida, see this doc pulled down my pants. He takes one look at my leg and he says, drive back to the hospital. I'm going to call him, tell him to admit you as soon as you get there plan to be there for probably two weeks. This is, we're catching this early. So some IV antibiotics should clear it up, but you're going to need to stay there for probably two weeks just to be monitored. So I was like, this is inconvenient, but I can deal with this. And so I go to the hospital, they start IV antibiotics at night, doing that around the clock. Every day they're marking with a marker they're drawing a circle around like how big of an area is affected based on skin coloration. And every day it's growing like three to four inches. So all the way around. And so after like day four or five, they're like, Hey, antibiotics aren't working. We're gonna, we're gonna go make an exploratory incision in your knee and just see what the inside of this leg looks like. So they made like a two inch incision and I'm out for it, but I wake up and it was late in the evening. So they just take me back to my room. I don't get any of the results that night. The next morning the doctor comes in or that night, actually the nurses were like, Hey, you still can't eat anything. And I was like, why not? Cause I, you know, you have to fast before surgery and I just fasted the night before. So I was looking forward to eating. They're like, you can't eat. And they're like, you're going back in for more surgery tomorrow. I was like, what the fuck for? So they didn't tell me, but the next morning the doc comes in and he's like, Hey, we cut your knee open and it looks like somebody opened the dishwasher and all the dirty dishwater just poured out of your leg. So he said, we're going to have to open your entire leg up and we're going to have to scrub it manually and clean all the dead tissue and all the necrotic fluid and everything out of there. And I was like, okay. So they start doing that. And 
what I didn't realize is that that was going to be a thing that we did every like three or four days for the next like two months. And so, yeah, every, every three or four days it was prep for surgery, go in three or four hours of them scrubbing my leg out. And then they eventually, because it was, it was pretty intense. Like the doctor would have his entire forearm between the muscle and the skin in my leg, just scrubbing out dead stuff. And so I would wake up in a lot of pain. They started giving me ketamine to ease me into that pain. And that was, so you talked about non-traditional therapies, you know, ketamine therapy is now a thing that we're using. Yep. I didn't have a therapist there, but I definitely needed one because that opened up some floodgates for me. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, so who are you talking to then? My wife. Okay. Do you, <laughs> is this a conscious stream or are you just talking to her? Do you know what you're saying or are you in a, mm, I don't want to say a daze, but definitely, so, a, yeah, I guess a daze. So I was in a daze. They would, as soon as the anesthesia would wear off and I would start to come to, they would hit me with ketamine and it would put me in a disassociative state for like 30 minutes. And then you kind of ease into the realization, which is the pain in my leg. So... I'm, and I'm a, by myself for that, like, 30 minutes as I'm, like, you know, in dreamland with with the ketamine. And then when they'd get me back up to my room, I would be alert and conscious and could hold a coherent conversation. But my wife was there. But I would have these dreams while I was on ketamine. It wasn't, it wasn't even like a dream. It was just like a third-party pers- third perspective of my own life. And I was able to give myself advice that I wouldn't normally listen to. <laughs> that it, it's to hear it though. And to hear you say that it's got to freak you out a little bit while it's happening. I just wanted, I just wanted to have deep conversations when I would come back to it okay. was like, you know, without, trying to sound super wooey it was like i felt like i had a glimpse behind the curtain like the wizard of oz back there right. and i was able to take a peek behind the curtain and all of a sudden like i was able to be like this is where you're fucking up zach this is where your priorities need this is where your priorities have been and this is where your priorities need to be and this is how you can get there okay and i would want to talk about that as soon as I came out and was back up in my room. And yeah, I'm sure at first it was like, where the hell is this all coming from? But then I explained it and I was like, I can't, I don't know. Um, but I'm sorry that my priorities have been fucked up and it's time to fix that. And, you know, that's also, Combined with, I had doctors coming at certain points throughout this whole thing saying, hey, 
things have taken a turn. We don't know how much longer you're going to be around. So make your peace with God. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. All right. I, I gotta, I gotta interrupt though. Cause I gotta ask a couple things when, when I, when I, you know, giggle about or whatever word you want to say, when you say you were talking to yourself in a third person um, and giving yourself advice, and then you hear the, what these doctors are saying to you. And I'm sure the people that you're talking to your wife doesn't know quite where this is coming from. When all that comes out, it sounds very strange to me as an outsider. I'm sure it sounded strange to them. Um, do you do you still believe the things you were saying, or do you think it was part of that? Do you really believe that your priorities were out, or do you think that you were realizing something that maybe wasn't there? No, I, I absolutely think my priorities were out of whack. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that when somebody has that conversation with you that like, Hey, you might be here right now, but in four hours, you might not be here. Okay. It, it makes you think about a lot of stuff. And the main thought that went through my head was if I die today, what's my funeral going to look like? Who's going to be there? What are the stories they're telling? Could somebody show up and say something that would be a negative, lasting memory about me? And that thought scared me. But that almost sounds like when you were talking about leaving special forces. Let me get out of here before someone thinks something different than what is the real story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at this point it wasn't, yeah, I guess, I guess it, yeah, pretty, pretty common, pretty similar. Um, I, I wasn't, except this time I was trying to live so that I could fix it. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I, you know, with special forces, I, I ran, so that I didn't have to be that guy that sat at a desk for the next, you know, at that point I still had nine years left in my career. I didn't want to sit at a desk for nine years. So I, I found something different. I didn't, I didn't run, but I, I, I opted to, to find a new purpose. And with this though, learning from all the mistakes I made became my new purpose. So, so well, yeah. Can we narrow down though? What, what is the purpose? Are you trying to right all the wrongs? Are you trying to make sure that your legacy is intact? I, I'm trying to understand exactly what, because when you say, I thought about someone could show up to my funeral and maybe say something bad that would stay around forever. Are you securing your legacy? Are you righting the wrongs? Are you getting redemption for yourself. What is it that you're looking for with this purpose? So securing my legacy, um, is definitely a part of it. I wanted to make sure that scout, my daughter had the, like at this point, like she only knew 
So Scout is actually my stepdaughter. I met Lindsay, my wife, when Scout was three, and it's been the three of us ever. And so, but she has, I was in the Q course when I met Lindsay. So Scout's whole life, I've been like home six months, gone six months, home six months, gone six months, right across America, back to contracting, home two months, gone two months, home three months, gone two. So she only knows me coming and going. I wanted to fix that. That was part of it. I wanted to create a more solid relationship with her, something that, you know, 20, if I passed away, you know, 10 years later, she has kids. She has stories to tell them about me and the relationship that we had. I wanted to create that. I didn't feel like I had created that yet. So that was part of it. And then stuff within my own marriage, um, to be completely honest with you, when I started contracting and prior to contracting, when I was an instructor, we were on rocky ground and we were living geographically separated. I started contracting going back overseas. We were working things that schedule seemed to facilitate us better. You know, prior to that, I was rehabbing and was home all the time. And we had never lived that way. It was always home for a couple months, gone for a couple months. That was all we ever knew. And then all of a sudden I was home for like two years. And she was like, we were both like, what, what do we do here? How do we, how do we negotiate this? Then I moved out of state, things got rockier. And, you know, I'm honest with with myself and I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. I had started a relationship with someone else and I realized that if I pass away, that could be what is left is is that could all come to the surface on the last day that I'm memorialized. And I was like, that's not who I want to be. And so I remember the night Lindsay came to the hotel, to the hospital and I said, Hey, we need to talk. And I said, cause I don't want you to find this out anywhere other than right here. And, and I laid it out there and, um, yeah, but it was, it was the beginning of the most valuable lessons I've learned through all of it, through the last 37 years. That was the beginning of, of the most valuable growth I've had. So let me ask you, how did she, how did she take it? Because let's be honest, you're in a very vulnerable state there. And I don't mean a vulnerable state by you're telling her. Well, of course you're telling her and that's being very vulnerable, but you're in a hospital. If she decides to say, fuck you and walk out, you're there on your own. Like if that doesn't work out in the plan that you had, where are you then? I wouldn't have blamed her. 
um, I probably deserved that. And, but she was exactly, she was more, she wasn't exactly what I needed. She was more than I needed. She did what I never thought would have been a possibility. She said, okay. And she said, let's, let's just focus on you getting healthy right now. And then we can, we can work on this. And she was like, that's the priority. You don't need to stress about that. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. She was, you know, it was hard. I'm not going to lie. It wasn't like she just like immediately was able to shut it off. There were daily conversations and a lot of tears, but she was able to, to stay by my side and never falter in, in front of me, at least. Okay. So how do you look at her? I want you to talk about her for a minute because that's a pretty amazing thing to do. Yeah. So let's um, talk about her for a minute. Yeah. I mean, I've never met anybody that has been able to show more grace than she has. This is going to be a weird question, but do you spend the rest of your life trying to be that person or do you think that you never will be able to be? That I won't be able to be? Yeah, like with as much grace as she's shown with the person that she's been, do you think you will ever be on that level with the way you handle situations, with the way you handle the day-to-day problems and things like that? I think, I think so. I think that experiencing being on the receiving end of grace like that has helped me be able to show grace. Okay. Um, Is this part of those, those 37 years where you say this is the most you've ever learned? Is that part of it? Yeah. I mean, the last two years of my life, um, the amount of self growth, if you will, has surpassed the the 35 years prior. Well, then that definitely explains the last five months being comfortable in your skin. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and it, it wasn't easy because that happened. So that happened after we found out that the infection had spread into my bloodstream, into my bones and into my heart. And now they were just waiting for vital organs to start shutting down. And that's when they came and had this conversation with me and said, Hey, we don't know if you're going to be here any longer. The hospital had also said at this point, you're beyond our care. This was the second hospital. So I'd already been transferred from one hospital to a higher level of care. Now this hospital is saying you're beyond our care. We need to transfer you to another, a higher level, like, you know, top level, top notch hospital. And the VA said, no, we're done. And in they, we had like, I did all the hard work. I had a doctor at BAMC in San Antonio that was like number one, top notch infectious disease trauma doctor accepting me as a patient through my network and my friends. He said, we'll take him on. 
So all we needed was for the VA to approve the move from the civilian hospital to a military hospital. And they said, no, we've, he's been in the hospital for four months. At this point I had had 15, 20 surgeries. They're like, he's not getting any better. We're not going to spend any more money on him. We'll move him to an assisted living home and he can die comfortably there at 35 years old. So that brings me to why I'm angry at the VA. (laughs) No. and, And I completely agree. You've done all the hard work. You've been through these surgeries. You told me when we go back to that first injury and you said you were like, like, what the fuck? You got to be that way now. Um, you've done this. You've tried to set your life right. You've done all these things. Does it ever cross your mind? Like, can I catch a fucking break here? At this point, because of these recent realizations that I had about my true character, I was really, it was more of uh this is karma. Yeah. No. Um, at that point, the, the pity party stopped and it was time to take ownership. And, and, you know, whether, whether that's true or not, you know, some higher power knows and I'll find out later on, but you know, maybe it was karma and maybe what karma really is, is a way of life showing us that we need to, to learn some lessons. And life told me I needed to learn some lessons and, and I did. And I can honestly say now I look back on that whole experience and there's more that we still have to, to unwrap, but I can look back on everything from the last, you know, now we're at two and a half years since this all started and i i can honestly say like i'm i'm glad it happened because the shit i learned from it the person i am now compared to the person i was before i like a lot more comfortable in your own skin knowing who you are now we do need to move forward with it though when this is over i want to talk about the suicide Mm-hmm. Um, because this is where the timeline for me, you're going to have to explain a little more cause it gets a little, uh, gray to me on the timeline. So you work through all this, you learn these things, but there's still a suicide attempt to come. Correct. Yeah. One definite, um, and a couple where I think I was, I mean, yeah, there was, there was one that I got caught. There was one that got interrupted and, but there were a couple that I tried and wasn't successful. Okay. So here's my question to you. When, when I talked about that and, and, and I talked to you before the show about this and everything, when, when that happens, what's not making sense to me or what I can't kind of, and this is where I say it gets gray to me. You just, we just talked about how you got a new lease on life. You figured out you, you were getting your legacy in order. You were doing all these things. And with something like that, you said it before in the, in the conversation that that was the coward's way out and all that kind of stuff. So you're going to secure this legacy and then do something like this and fuck that whole legacy up again. 
it, it does, this is why the timeline gets gray to me and it, I, sure. I, I don't understand kind of where your headspace is at on it. So I got transferred in August of 2020. I got transferred up to Massachusetts to Mass General Hospital. Um, got up there and was admitted into the ICU. At that point, I had really bad pneumonia. I had the infection everywhere. And they, this was the VA said, no, we're just going to send him to a nursing home, a nonprofit that worked with some contracting companies ended up offering to send me up to Mass General. They had the best trauma care team up there. So they were standing by and they got me, I couldn't fly commercial because due to the infection, I had like 105 degree fever and this was during COVID and they're not gonna let me get on a plane like that. So got a private jet, flew up to Boston, get in, go into the ICU. It was messy for about a month I was in there and they're, you know, pumping fluid out of my lungs, washing my leg out still. I ended up having two strokes um, while I was in the hospital. I went blind for a period of time. I lost function of the left side of my body. Couldn't remember anything um, to include like my name. And I started to think that this is what's going to be left. Like, I'm going to be like this the rest of my life. I'm going to be blind. I'm going to be paralyzed on one side. And it wasn't. After about two weeks, I started to regain control of the left side of my body. My vision started to come back. I had a bunch of seizures during this time also. So right after the strokes, I started having seizures again. And <clears throat> one was really bad to the point where brain, they were concerned I was going to be brain dead um, because it had gone on for about 10 minutes. The amount of drugs they had given me was a borderline, a lethal dose just to try to stop the seizure. And Afterwards, I finally stopped seizing and then I didn't wake up for like 10 hours and they weren't sure what the repercussions of that was going to be. They, I ended up flatlining on the table. They had to use the paddles and, and zap me back to life. And I eventually where, you know, at this point I had had this second lease on life for like two or three months, but still shit was happening like one after the other, like, and I'd have a little bit of the period where we're like, okay, we're getting ahead of it. And then something would happen. And then it's two steps back and then one step forward and two steps back. And so by December, I was just, I had constantly been living in this, waiting for the other foot to drop mentality. Um, and I was exhausted. I had been confined to a bed now for six months. I wasn't sure of anything. If I did live what life was going to look like physically, 
emotionally, spiritually, mentally, relationships. There were so many unknown factors and I didn't even know if I was going to live. And finally, I just hit a wall and I was like, I'm sick of fighting. And, you know, it, it eased into it. I would, while I was still in the hospital, I would have moments where I was like, I'm done. And I lay in bed at night and I would pray and I hadn't been religious in years, but I would pray, but not for the right things. I wouldn't pray to get better. I would just pray for the suffering to stop. I just, just let me fall asleep tonight and not wake up tomorrow. And then you wake up and it's a letdown that you woke up because that means you've got to fight another day and you pray again and then you wake up and eventually it got to the point where I, I stopped anything that wasn't being administered into an IV in the hospital. I wouldn't take that medicine hoping that the infection would take over and I would just not have to deal with it anymore. Um, and yeah, so that's what led to December. I wasn't able, things hadn't, I was still dealing with complications in February. I ended up being admitted back into the hospital. So in December, I was still pretty sick. <coughs> Excuse me. At this point, I went from being 240 pounds when I went into the hospital to like 185 pounds. So I did not look good. I did not feel good. I had no energy. I felt like a burden to my family. I'm out of the hospital at this point and back at home. So now Lindsay and I are starting to unpack some of that baggage that I laid on in the hospital. And I just didn't have the bandwidth for it anymore. And that's what, that's what led to me going into the woods with the intention of not coming back from the woods. You were uh, stopped by a police officer, right? Yeah. Yep. How far are we into it? That, that's what I was about to ask you. Before the policeman finds you, how far are we into this? Um, I I just driven out there and parked my truck. And yeah, somebody, I don't know if they saw me driving out there. It was nighttime, so they could probably see the headlights through the woods. It's pretty thick woods slash swamp back there. But I had been out there. I've been gone from home probably about an hour. How close were you to it? So I had written letters. I had a hose hooked up in my truck to start the, the carbon monoxide poisoning process in the event that I couldn't get myself to pull the trigger. And that was when they pulled up. It always seems weird in your story to me that uh, like you pray to not wake up and then you wake up and then you go out in the woods and this guy just appears out of nowhere and and uh, takes you to where you need to go. You got to understand, and, and I know we've talked about this the whole way, you've got to understand, just like you said about karma, there's got to be some kind of purpose that you haven't fulfilled yet. 
hundred percent because I mean, even the, the close calls I've had, um, being hit by a car, this, this disease, there have been a lot of times in my life that I've been reckless and, and probably shouldn't have walked away. And now I don't know. So the thing, the crazy part about this whole thing is now that we've unwrapped the majority of this story, people kept telling me throughout this, man, Zach, you're really one resilient dude. But what I really was, was really good at hiding what was really going on. I found resilience through these things. And so after I got out of that hospital, which I was only in that hospital, so I'm going to put a caveat on this too. So I was back on those same seizure meds that caused all the psychotic side effects before. I was back on that medication when this happened. So I got taken in to 72 hour hold at the hospital and the doctor looked at my medication list. So that night, the first night, um, I got into a fight with a guy. And this guy was a good way to start it. Yeah. So they get me in there and this dude started fighting with a nurse. Well, first he came and tried to start fight with me and I just didn't even acknowledge it. He like came and shoulder checked and he thought he was in prison. He was strung out on meth and he's like trying to dump, like be like the, the alpha male in there thinking he's in prison. And <clears throat> I didn't, I didn't give it any energy and the, the nurses were like, Hey, we saw that just so you know, you handled that really well. And they were cool. Well, then this guy goes and tries to find a nurse, a female nurse. So I pulled him off, held him down. Security comes, restrains him. They take him in, shoot him up with something. They moved me to another floor. They came and said, thank you because this dude was punching this nurse in the face and they came, they came and they said, thank you. We're going to get you in with the doctor because you seem to really have your shit together and see if we can expedite this process. So psych doc comes in, he looks at my med chart and he's like, are you still on Kepra? And I was like, yeah. And he said, do you normally feel like this? I told him the whole backstory. I was like, I just got put back on that last month. I've had these crazy erratic behavior side effects in the past. And he was like, I, I really think that's what's going on right now. And so he ended, he called Lindsay. He asked Lindsay, you know, did a, an interview or whatever with her without me in the room asking her, do you think he is really a harm to himself? Do you think you can control him at home? So they decide I was in there like 12 hours and they let me go. And, but I made that decision at that point on the way home. I was like, it's time to find a purpose. I need something to drive towards. Otherwise I'm just going to keep waiting for the other foot to drop. And I had people throughout 
the last six months while I was in the hospital and the last three years while I was recovering from the car accident telling me like, Zach, you're resilient. You always find a way to come out stronger than before when you face adversity. And while that was true and I'll own that, like I'm not going to downplay it. Like I, I did find ways to overcome a lot of stuff and I'm proud of that. But I also hit a lot of stuff. And so it was time to start dealing with that stuff that I didn't want to hide anymore. And I started doing the work. I started daily doing an inventory of what things in my life were driving me towards where I wanted to be and what things were holding me back from it. What people in my life were facilitating the direction I wanted to go and who was keeping me from moving in that direction. And I started implementing those changes. And as I started to have more energy because I'm eliminating stress, I could tackle the next problem or the next suitcase as we talked about earlier. It didn't feel so overwhelming anymore. And then I started, I was invited to, to share this whole shit show on a podcast and I had never done a podcast before. And I did, and I had people reach out and say, man, this, I've been there and I know it's hard to talk about. And that's why I've never talked about it, but it sure did feel good to know that somebody else has been there too. And that became my new purpose was sharing what I've learned because we learned so much through retrospect, all of this that I learned retrospect, looking back, how could I have done it different? Where did I go wrong? If we can pass that information on to our peers that we've learned through our own struggles, then maybe it's not going to be as hard when they go through that struggle or a struggle similar to that. And, you know, we talked about how our time in the military can sometimes change our outlook on humanity. But this is, if more people just shared their own experiences, their own struggles, their own achievements, and how they did it, we can learn from each other and humanity is going to be in a much better place. And so that's, that's been my purpose since ever since that day I left that hospital. So I want to add two caveats onto that. And these will kind of be the last of your questions. We'll get into what you're doing now. The purpose of what's Zach being a dad from here on out and what's Zach being a husband from here on out for both is being more involved. And that's, in multiple areas with, with my daughter, I want to support anything and everything that she wants to do. And I want to, you know, so I do a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here. I have actually had to have some of these conversations with her recently. She about two weeks ago, um, over Christmas break, she had her first experience with mortality. She's 16. A friend of hers, also 16. 
was hit by there was a cop in a high-speed pursuit here in Baton Rouge and the cop was chasing the car down the highway and they hit her friend's car and killed her another girl and put their brother in the ICU and that's the first time she's lost anybody and you know so this also goes back to how I handle things different from my father I do have experience losing friends in unexpected circumstances. You know, I've lost friends to illness, but I've also had friends that have been shot, blown up, all those things. And I try to pass on just like with, with sharing my story and how purpose has driven my resilience. I talk with her about how I got through those times, what works for me. And, you know, this, there's not an answer for everyone, but she has no idea how to tackle the loss of a friend. She's never lost an immediate family member. She's lost dogs, but that's the closest thing to it. So, and before, I wouldn't have known how to talk to her about that, but I want to make sure I leave. I want to make sure she's successful. Like that is as a father, that's, that's my number one goal is to make sure that she's successful. And, and it's hard because sometimes you also got to teach those tough love lessons. And so it's not, steering away from those conversations, but driving towards them and confronting them and having those uncomfortable one-on-one talks with her. And the same goes with my wife. I mean, every, every day, multiple times a day until the point that she gets annoyed, I will, if I have just a couple minutes that in between calls or emails or meetings or whatever's going on or the gym, I'll send a message just to let her know, Hey, I'm thinking about you. And I also will pay attention to her body language, her tone. And I can pick up on when something that I'm doing is making her uncomfortable. And I do everything I can to put her mind at ease because I owe that to her. When I needed her to set, I can't imagine how many feelings she had in that hospital room when I told her that. But she was able to set all those feelings aside and focus on what I needed still, even though I was the asshole. So now... I owe it to her to make sure anytime I can tell something's off, whether it's related to me or not. Sometimes it's related to work. Sometimes it's not easy having a 16 year old daughter. You know this. Sometimes it's just that. But whenever I sense something's off, I make sure that she knows I'm here for you. You're not here alone. And we're going to get through this together. And, and that's the start. And then, just recreating memories because what comes along with a deathbed confession is a lot of tainted memories. And so just remaking those memories and making sure that there's no doubt associated with them. Yeah. 
it's a it's a long road ahead for you. Um, yeah, I I think it's probably going to be, if I can be as bold to say it, I think it's going to be your toughest battle uh, that you fought so far. And I I've told you before when we were talking, the more people that talk about it, the more we realize that it's a real thing. The better and easier it's going to be for other people to get through. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the problems I've faced, it's no secret that, that these are problems that are vast amongst our community. And, Absolutely. you know, everybody's got, I don't, I don't want to say like, you know, the, the stuff that I dealt with in the military led to my decision making because that's just an excuse. I made a decision. I'm the one that's accountable for it. The military is not accountable. Did, you know, I don't know. I have trouble showing myself grace. And so that's, that's where my journey is now is trying to learn to show myself grace, but maybe I don't deserve, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm learning from it and I'm happy with that progress. Um, I'm not making the same mistakes. And to, to every, everybody within my control that I hurt knows I have reached out. I have said, I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that. That was my shit. I wasn't happy in my own skin. And that decision making was a product of that. The only thing I would add to that is I think that by you doing this and telling your story, you kind of are giving yourself a little bit of grace. I'm learning to. Yeah. This but is, I think you are by saying, I messed this up. This is on me. And you're telling yourself, I messed it up, but now I'm going to fix it. Because, dude, I, I mean, I don't mean this in an arrogant way or that I'm tougher than anyone else, but I have not been able to die. And I don't want to keep living the way I was. So the only option I have is to make it right. Absolutely. It's a, it's an amazing story. Now I want to get into what you're doing now. I want to get into the seven X project. Uh, and I want to get into the hero games. Uh, and we're going to talk what they do. And then we're going to kind of wrap this up on that. Perfect. So seven X project. So this is the brainchild of a crazy Navy SEAL named Ryan Birdman Parrot. And it came to my attention. So I did a, the Medivac podcast with Christian and David. And shortly after I did that, they, Christian called me. He had a meeting with Ryan and shared with him our podcast episode. And they called and they were like, hey, do you want to do this thing with us? And they briefed it to me and they said, we're going to skydive, we're going to run a marathon, and we're going to swim on all seven continents in seven days. And I was like, hell yes, I want to do this. But the only part of that that I could fulfill would be the swim right now with where, because so 2021, I stopped having the, the infection cleared up by 
November 2021, I was fully cleared. But I still had in 2022, I still had multiple reparative surgeries. So running a marathon seven days in a row, my body's not going to have it. I'm not free fall qualified with enough jumps to jump in all the countries that they're jumping in. So I said, I want to be a part of this, but how can we make this worthwhile? So I invited my friend Katie Hernandez, who is a female captain in the army. She's an EOD bomb tech, and she's also the world record holder for the one mile run in a bomb suit. She's a complete badass. And I called her and said, you want to go do this and run a mile in a bomb suit and I'll run in full kit because it takes two people to get that bomb suit on. So I was like, I'll be your partner. We'll get you in the bomb suit. We'll run a mile together. And then if we want to go without the bomb suit, we can meet up with the marathon runners and run a half marathon or a 10K or a 5K still. We can do all the swims. And then in the countries where we can jump, we'll do some jumps as well. So, but the purpose, what really drove me towards this project is the intent behind it. It's an awesome experience. It's it's a once in a lifetime experience that I am super grateful and super blessed to have the opportunity to be a part of. But the real intent behind it is to study human performance and We've got a medical staff that's coming along. They're going to be tracking all of our biometrics, controlling our recovery and everything. And they're going to take all this data and there's going to be a documentary made and then there's going to be a manual written. And it's going to focus on how to get the veteran and first responder back to their true north after a career full of various traumas or a lifetime full of traumas but how to get back to a good solid physiological homeostasis. So, you know, we use the analogy, Ryan and I actually, one of the first conversations we talked about, so we deployed a war. There's not a lot of training that goes on in a war zone because you just don't have the means to. You're either on a mission or you're pulling some other sort of duty. There's not, you're not doing training exercises in combat. You might go to the range, but that's about the extent of it. So when we come home, we don't immediately jump back into advanced marksmanship. We go back to the basics. We go back to the fundamentals. So it's come, it's it's going to be focusing on building a solid foundation again before you try to put a mansion on top of it, getting that foundation solid so that whatever house you put on top of it doesn't collapse again. And... So this manual and this documentary will come out and 100% of the net proceeds will go to various nonprofits that support veteran and first responder mental health. So we take off February 17th. We are tomorrow one month out and I still have some fundraising to do. Bird's eye view project. Follow that in the menu tab, donate, one-time donation. Feel free to put in the comments that it's support Zach's 7X fundraiser. I have a goal of raising $100,000 for them. And 
I don't know where I'm at exactly because a lot of donations have come in behind the scenes off. I had a GoFundMe going, but a lot of people want that tax write off. So we've now opened it up to just go straight to Ryan's nonprofit. And then those funds will be appropriated amongst the charities that we've selected. It's going to be pretty amazing. Let's talk about the hero games real quick. And you are still looking for some teammates. So let's get that out there. All right. So Hero Games Charity was started by my very best friend, Josh Daniels. And he and I went through the Q course together. And he started this charity with one mission. Well, one mission and I guess two. Uh, The main mission is to support Gold Star families. So every year they pick one family to benefit. And last year it was a former Ranger, John Penny. And so each year is a different family. They'll pick that guy. They'll share his legacy, his story. They'll put on events throughout the whole year. Everything that's raised throughout the year goes to that family, whatever means they may need it for. If that's, you know, to, to, to pay bills, to send kids through college, to anything that they need. It's, it, we just cut a check to that family and ask them, you know, use this however it'll be most appropriate for you guys. So the main event each year, we do multiple events throughout the year. We'll do survival courses for adults, youth survival courses, mountain survival courses, swamp survival courses. All that stuff goes to offset the funding of the main event. And the main event this year is going to be June 3rd in Virginia. And it's basically a one-day team week. So multiple events throughout the day with various unknown distance movements in between events. And teams of 12 competing. This year, it's primarily... CrossFit gyms that are entering 12 person teams. So Josh asked that I would lead a 12 man completely special operations team. So we currently have five operators signed up. And so I need seven more. So if you are hearing this and you have a special operations background, you're in somewhat decent shape and you're available June 3rd to be in Virginia, slide into my DMs. (laughs) All right. Where can people find you, find out more about you uh, and just hear, you know, your, your rantings or your posts or whatever they may be, where can they find you? So Instagram, it's a funny story. Uh, My Instagram handle is Zach Z A C K underscore next underscore door zach next door because at one time i had this million dollar idea that i was going to start a OnlyFans page and zach next door felt like a, a a good title for an OnlyFans page except the scheme is you gotta pay to see the content so it's a low budget number it's like two dollars and 99 cents this doesn't actually exist so don't waste your time working for it it was just an idea i had and I ran with it, but like $3 to subscribe. 
And I was going to have like 200 pictures of me just standing next to doors. So once you subscribe and I get your $3, you realize it's not porn at all. It's just me standing next to doors. However, all three of those dollars were going to get turned into the Hero Games charity as a donation. Well, so you can't I mean, be mad. It's like a non maybe this is a fu- maybe this is a future endeavor for just a website for you. Uh, there's doors pretty much everywhere you look. So I've got like nine in my house, I think. Maybe. Is there anything else you want to promote before we end this up? Um, Task Force Dagger. Task Force Dagger has been there for me throughout the years, and they, you know, so they supported me when I did my bike ride across the country, and everything that I raised benefited them. But they also supported me when I got hit by that car. They took me and my whole family down to Key West, taught me how to scuba dive, got me in the water. And then while I was in the hospital with necrotizing fasciitis, I needed a very specific leg brace for my leg. They funded the cost for that leg brace. And then Jeff Dardia, who you've had on this show, I just think the world of Jeff. I learned Amazing guy. Every time I talk to him, I learn like 10 new things. He's like the smartest guy I know. And he's hilarious and just a good person. So I can't say enough about the 7X Project, Hero Games Charity, and Task Force Dagger. If there are things that you're looking at supporting for the veteran community this year, I say start right there. That's an amazing way to end it. Uh, You have a fantastic story, Zach. I'm so glad you came on here and then we got to talk. Next week we get to drag it a little further by talking to your uh, partner for the 7X Project. Um, But I am so grateful that you came here, opened yourself up, and became so vulnerable because I think a lot of people, like I said, need this. Now, guys, uh, you know everywhere that you can find him, but uh, everywhere you can find me. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD Podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. But your one-stop shop, it's the DTDpodcast.net. Go there. Audio, video, photos of Zach, photos of the injuries, photos of the recoveries, and just pictures of him all around. It's got his bio. It's got every link that you'll need on him, how you can help him out, and keep following his progress. Go there, dtdpodcast.net. It's the greatest website that has ever been made and that you will ever go to. Also, don't forget, go to our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. Now, you know they're an officer-owned business. I tell you that. You know they craft the finest coffees and blends, and you know they're shipped to you as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees don't miss on their flavor. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And guess what? We got a flavor alert. We got new stuff in. We got a Texas pecan, one ranger. We also have NYPD brew, the two new flavors. You mix that with your pumpkin spice, your peppermint mocha. You got flavors for days. Make sure you go by there, policecoffee.com. You put in DJK10, you get 10% off your order. Guys, that's going to be it for the show this week. Make sure you check out the 7X Performance Project. Make sure you check out the Hero Games. And make sure you check out this guy, Zachary Garner. 
I'm so glad he's been here. I'm so glad he told his story. That's Zach. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.